Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by MedFusion. MedFusion is a healthcare IT company obsessed with improving the patient experience, simplifying patient-provider communications, and driving financial and operational efficiencies for providers. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we are joined by two guests, Kim LeBau, CEO of MedFusion, and Karen Clark, who's the CIO with Ortho Tennessee. MedFusion's one of the most robust solutions for patients to aggregate all of their medical records together in one place. As Kim puts it, Patients can be their own health information exchange. Karen is going to walk us through how MedFusion has helped the patients in their practice and about her role as a female CIO of such a large medical organization. So uh, MedFusion's actually been around for about 20 years. We are one of the founders of the patient portal space. Over the years, we've evolved from kind of a pure patient portal to what we call today our patient experience platform. So that includes everything across the continuum of communication between a provider and their patient base. So scheduling appointments, paying bills, um, surveys, telehealth, uh, filling out forms online in advance, um, everything kind of from soup to nuts we've tried to address uh, and create kind of the broadest and also deepest uh, patient experience platform on the market. We integrate with very deeply with a number of, of EHRs. We're mostly in the ambulatory space, um, and we've got uh, 40,000 providers and 15.5 million patients that utilize MedFusion today. And so how did you how did, did you just wake up and you're like, I'm going to build this? We're going to start a portal that would become the patient experience one-stop shop? That, that is li- literally what our founder did, correct. Okay. Yes, yeah, so um, in 1999... Our founder, Steve Malak, uh, was, was hell-bent on creating a better way for providers and patients to communicate electronically. So, you know, having a patient portal in 2000 2001 was unheard of. And it was a very um, interesting time from a sales and a marketing and an understanding perspective. Now, of course, post-meaningful use days, 
um, everybody either everybody knows what it is, although they may have a skewed definition of it to view, download, and transmit, which we, of course, have never, we've always believed it's more than that. Um, and and most, most practices are currently employing some kind of patient portal uh, technology. And well, that's great yes. that Steve did that. Yes. But how did you come to, like, run the MedFusion empire? So I was actually with MedFusion uh, 20, 2008 to 2010. I ran marketing and product management inside sales for the business. We were then acquired, actually, by Intuit. Um, and I came back to the business at the request of the board and the leadership team at the very end of 2015 to run product management and then was promoted into the CEO job in February of 2016. So they liked what you're doing, and they trusted you. I, I hope so, yes. <laughs> All right. Yep. <laughs> Karen, tell us about your piece of the healthcare and health IT puzzle at Ortho, Tennessee. Sure. Uh, Ortho, Tennessee is an orthopedic surgery practice. We have 57 surgeons and about 110 providers overall. So we see about 365,000 patient visits a year. The interesting thing for us is even though we're a physician practice, we have all the challenges of a small to medium-sized hospital when it comes to volume. I came to Ortho, Tennessee in 1998, having consulted with them for several years. And so that's how I came to join the Ortho, Tennessee team. Um, and then, of course, my role really has expanded over the years as meaningful use has come into play. And, Joy, I know you've written a couple of books uh, on that topic. Uh, and now the QPP program. So uh, the role of the CIO is really expanded much beyond just technology. So you're the CIO for Ortho, Tennessee? That's correct. Okay. Well, we have to tell our listeners that. That's super important. We're speaking with the CEO and CIO. Important. These are the kind of women we want to speak with at like a girl pod. We want to hear about everyone's piece. Oh, and terrific. we're talking to C-suite pros. So... Uh, yeah, one, I'll tell you one of the most gratifying things was last night going to the Women in IT, Health IT reception here, because when that started, there were 100 people there, maybe. And last night, there were over 800. Are you serious? I'm that's absolutely amazing. serious. And that's, to me, that's, that's really, really gratifying. Mm-hmm. And that's not that long. That's tremendous. That's yeah, part of the reason we started is. this, was just to amplify those voices and the you know achievements and contributions of, of women in healthcare and health IT. And I think Kim and I have a special responsibility in our positions to find and nurture and mentor uh, younger women in a way that mentoring relationships were not always available to mm-hmm. us when we were coming up. Yep. We sort of had to figure it out on our own. And so I'm always looking for opportunities to find younger women, students, women just starting out in their careers who could use a little help. Because um, I think that's it's our responsibility. Yep, agreed. Well, Kim, how do you know Karen? Uh, Karen is one of our client partners, so okay. and one of our best and most beloved client <laughs> partners. So they test I, the I heck. Sent, I sent strawberries <laughs> to the office in full disclosure. That's true. That is true. That is true. Bribery, true. bribery, bribery works, but um, Karen's practice uses the heck out of our products and tests them and pushes them and provides great feedback um, when we need it and we always need it um, to, to ensure that we're continually continually bettering our, our services and our solutions as well for our clients. And how is that solution fuel your piece of the health IT puzzle and what you all are doing in Ortho, Tennessee? Well, you know, it's, it's difficult for us in orthopedic care because we provide episodic care. You fracture your wrist, we might see you for six to ten weeks and then you're really gone. Um, And so there's not a lot of incentive for orthopedic patients to sign up to a portal, log into the portal, 
uh, because really um, we're all bombarded with many portal invitations and most patients log into their primary care portal and that's it. So one of the reasons we were struggling with um, uptake on the portal and usage of the portal, and it was, as you know, a meaningful use requirement and is still a MIPS measure. And so one of the things we really liked about Midfusion, it was EHR agnostic. We didn't have to use the same EHR. And patients did not necessarily have to log in to do the number one thing they like to do on our portal, which is pay their bill. If you click on the portal, you have a choice, if you're a patient, of log in or I just want to pay my bill. And it's written in plain English. It's not medical terminology. It's I just want to pay my bill. And everyone says, yes, I just want to pay my bill. And off they go. And so um, and we really like the mobile uh, aspect of it and the idea that once you had that mobile app on your phone, you could log into multiple portals you might have at multiple providers and have it all in the palm of your hand. And the, the other ones we saw simply didn't have that mobile capability. And I don't know about you, but I live on my phone. And if I can't do it on my phone, I very often don't do it. So. so the uptake has been terrific. Also, they automatically invite all of our patients. So that's been a huge load off our staff. Selfishly, I'm curious to know your feedback about the changes this year for MIPS and specifically around the portal. I'll answer that first, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> because and for those who don't know, the requirement is now that you still have to provide access, but you're not necessarily measuring whether or not the patient has viewed, downloaded, or transmitted their data. Of course, also, uh, the, the, the messaging. Message. Right. Well, I, you know, I applaud that because we can certainly invite people, but we can't require them mm-hmm. to use it. And so I think any measures that were based on requiring a patient to do something uh, might be interesting statistics, but I think it's really an unfair way to measure the performance of the practice. So I applaud those, and I applaud some of the other measures, especially the new rules released around interoperability and uh, APIs. I think that's really what's going to make, make things sing. You would have thought we planned this out because that's exactly the direction where I was going to go when I answered the question is as a, as a vendor provider, um, I look at it a little bit differently because obviously we want as much utilization as possible from as many people as possible. However, we look at it from a, we've always been patient-centric and we've always been putting the patient at the center of their care and, and our, some of our recent initiatives around the APIs and around enabling patients to aggregate all of their health data regardless of what system it's in because we all know nothing talks to anything. So if you have four different providers and one's on Athena and one's on eClinical Works and one's on Epic and one's on Cerner, our app enables you to bring all of those records together into one place and organize them and see them in one true longitudinal health record. So while the measures are less you know, restrictive, so to speak, on the utilization from a patient perspective, um, we believe that these added capabilities, we, we want to encourage, we want patients to want to get more involved in their health care. And so we provide, provide the capability for them to do that. You know, I've heard for years that people have been looking for the mint. That's exactly what they call it. Yeah. They call us the mint, the mint for healthcare. Yeah. So we were, you know, I think it's no coincidence we were acquired by Intuit, and so there's a lot of that kind of DNA in there. But about four years ago, we released a consumer app that you can download on the App Store called MedFusion Plus. That's the the first iteration of our data aggregation and data interoperability play. We we've called that the we want every patient to be their own HIE, mm-hmm. um, and we're or we've said you know we're, we want to break down the interoperability barrier patient by patient. In the years since we launched MedFusion Plus, we've made our APIs available. And that's what many many companies and businesses are, are licensing now. If they have 
um, a value proposition or a product that would, or even a, um, a varied uh, health system with multiple <coughs> EHRs, we have the mechanism now through our APIs to enable those companies or those health systems to be able to provide a true longitudinal view and a true longitudinal um, aggregation of data on behalf of these patients that you know heretofore never were able to, to do that on their own. So that's the most that's what we've been talking about at the show. That that's the most exciting. We've had a couple press releases come out this week and about some of the clients that are doing that. But that I think that's kind of we're like let's let's put tools in front of these patients so they want to engage and they want to interact with their their so, care. Karen, are you seeing the patients? Is that what's happening? That they that they uh, are connecting to the portal, but able to access you know not just their information from Orchard Tennessee, but also compiling it or aggregating it from the other places. Well, I would <clears throat> I wouldn't have visibility into that, of course. Sure. That would happen. But I, I think one of the things that Medfusion did right right from the beginning is they designed the app mobile first. And most of the other um, portals that we've seen, especially in start, were uh, assumed that the person was accessing it with the computer. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the way people live their lives. Yeah. And I won't name names, but one of the first portals we used had a 99-page user manual for the patient. And so <clears throat> I, I asked, the, I asked uh, what, what, what did they would anticipate that we would do with this 99-page document, and the answer came back that we could print it and hand it out to every patient as we saw them, and we see 15,000 patients a month, so obviously that was not, yeah. So uh, then the next year they came back and said, oh, Karen, you're going to be so happy. We've gotten the user manual down to 10 pages. I said, well, that is awesome. How long is the user manual for Amazon? How long is the user manual for, I don't know, your Delta Airlines app? If it needs a 10-page user manual, that means it's not usable. And so I think the thing that MedFusion did right is dead simple. It does the five things patients want to do, but it does them easy, simple, fast. It's written in plain English. You know, ask a question, pay my bill, request a refill, request an appointment, simple, simple. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really a a credit that you started mobile first, long before the assumption was mobile. Mm -hmm. There was some real foresight there. The best solutions are definitely the simple ones. And if it's not intuitive and it's not doable, so to speak, people aren't going to do it. Yeah. Kim, do you have an example of a success story where the ability to aggregate those records from different systems has made a difference in the life of a patient, their experience, or maybe even their outcome? Yeah. So um, I have a number of them. I'll, I'll give you one that I think is kind of cool. It's with one of our, our partners. So we partner with a research clinical research organization. Um, one of the, the programs is a, a child autism um, research study. And prior to MedFusion, if you wanted to enroll your child into this research study, it's run out of Johns Hopkins, you as a parent would have to go to all of your child's physicians and request their, his, his or her clinical data. You would then compile that into a big pile, and you would bring it to the researcher, and you would leave it on the researcher's desk. I'm being a little dramatic. Leave it on the desk, and they would have to sift through it and figure it out. Through the APIs, as a parent, and through the workflow for this research program, all I need to do is enter my child's logins and passwords to their to the portals that 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 child the doctor the doctor sees, and 
automatically the data is sent electronically to the researcher. It's sent in the format that they're looking for. It's sent in the manner that they're looking for. And the, you know, kind of the feedback that we've gotten from the head of that program is this is the only time in his 30 years of <laughs> clinical research that he's ever seen patient-generated <laughs> clinical data come in electronically. And in so, a consistent format. And in a consistent format. And in a format that's, that's consumable by whatever EHR yes. system he's using. Yes. Yeah. And a more simplified um, example of MedFusion Plus, the app, actually a, a girl that works for MedFusion, who you know we try to encourage all of our employees to utilize the Plus app, so she had all of her records from all of her, her providers on her phone in her app, and she ended up uh, going to an urgent care for, for some reason, and they we're going to give her like a medication or a shot of something that she's allergic to. And they had no way of knowing that, and she was able to show them her phone and show them the records that she has from her entire you know, medical uh, family, so to speak, and say, you, here's why you can't give this to me. I know I'm allergic to something, and here's what it is. <laughs> so, I mean, that's huge, you know, yeah. to be able to, it's, sim it's simple, it's so simple, but it, um, it's impactful, I think. It's such an important tool. You know, the, the comment made by Epic about why the patient wants a record, I was in the middle of a crazy three-year journey with our son that went from healthy overnight to event-dependent quadriplegic with a rare disease. And we were at so many different hospitals that, and, and ignorantly, as I said here, I don't know about Medfusion and its capabilities, but I can't tell you how many times I've had to manually aggregate That's that right. data, mm -hmm. extract what was useful for the physician, just those pages, which is why I'm ready for the data noise to go away, to take the pertinent pieces of information and give it to someone. But even once you do that, it's not like it's the naming convention and the indexing of that information <laughs> becomes Correct. very usable to a physician, Karen, to yeah. your point, because I can give it to you, I can give it to the administrator, the physician, but if it's not something that's meaningful or that I can get through and go, okay, well, the plan of each of these is on the last page, and I just want to see what they've done to date as far as plans mm -hmm. to attack the same issue. Great. You've come up with the mint or the uh, golden nugget to solve that. So dude, that's super smart, that's and super it's cool. so simple. Okay. And to your point, for your patients, even on a very episodic level, you're gaining engagement you wouldn't otherwise have in a really intuitive way. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. Well, and I think what healthcare has to realize, and we've, we've all got to get with the program here, is customers, patients, don't compare you to similar business experiences of other providers. They compare their experience with you with their experience with everyone they do business with. And they say, well, Delta's easy to do business with. Amazon's easy to do business with. My car insurance company's easy to do business with. Why is it so hard? for me to do business with you and get information or pay my bill or make an appointment mm -hmm. because everywhere else I go it's easy and they're right. They are. So that leads us to our next question. If you could snap your fingers and solve any problem in the health IT arena and space, go ahead and put your magic hat on. Ooh, right? ooh, I know already. <laughs> All right, we'll let Karen go, <laughs> we'll go, Karen. Yes. go first. A unique patient identifier. You know that Congress prohibited HHS from funding any research on Why unique you patient. Want it? Because my name is Karen Clark, and the last time oh I gosh. Googled myself, oh there were 3,994 of me. Yeah. And if I show up here unconscious in the emergency room in a city I don't live in, without identification, I mean, it, you know, I just think it's in a lot of the work we do around patient matching and patient data exchange and mm -hmm. a national network of, of data exchange, mm -hmm. it's silly not to have a, a unique patient identifier. Absolutely. 
I could make some more comments, but they would be redundant from another episode. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. yeah. And your use case is, is mm -hmm. a great example. Kim, what's oh, your okay. what's your, what's your help? Great, that, no, what's your so, um, I mean, I, because I, mean, I come from the, the space right now, the, the whole solution to, to interoperability, I re recognize if everything touched to each other overnight, a huge part of our business would, <laughs> would not necessarily be needed. But I do think that that's you know, the fact that we still have silos of information. Actually, you know what? I'm going to answer this differently because okay. that is something. Uh, Kim's getting a mulligan. I am. What's your <laughs> I'm going to get a mulligan because I'm going to go back to the things that we've been preaching for the last three or that I've been preaching for the last three years since I've been in this role, and that is the absolute undeniable truth that patients own their own health data, period. There's no, no one argues that. No one lays claim to be to the ownership of a patient's health data. No system, no health plan, no state legislature, no nothing. This is our data. We should be able to do what we want with it, when we want to do whatever we want to do with it. That's what I, I think for me and for my business, I think that that's been missing, that attitude about who's, you know, to not name names, but when CEOs of very large uh, healthcare technology co companies stand up in front of 5,000 people and say, we shouldn't have access to our data because we're too stupid to know what to do with it, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So, um, It's a huge problem, yeah. and it's a problem whether you're a mom with a small mm -hmm. child who has mm -hmm. nine asthma plans yep. mm -hmm. at 2 a.m. on a Saturday in an ER, mm -hmm. or you deal with a chronic manageable disease and don't even have transportation means to mm -hmm. get to your doctor in rural America. Mm -hmm. And so I absolutely agree with you. And especially in this day and age when no one wants to share the information or wants everyone to share but them, mm -hmm. let's put it in the hands of the person it belongs to yep. in the first place. Yep. Well, and that, that's why I really um, am so supportive of the ONC uh, proposed rule that dropped. I mean, I'm, I'm a free market person. I believe in letting free markets establish competition and pricing and, okay. and high quality. But there are some uh, areas, and I think the sharing of data is one where we simply must have some regulation and some law around it because the seamless exchange of information but with the Commonwealth and Care Equality Alliance, we could be exchanging data with thousands of partners today, but there's simply you know, hospitals, health systems that are in the same city or similar regions who do not want to share, and it is not a technology problem. It's a people and a politics and a competition mm -hmm. problem. All right, next question. I thought there were question. only three. This is the third. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we are building a reading list for oh. the listeners. And oh, so God. if you have any books that you can consider, go ahead, take your phone out. If you listen to Audible, no big deal. It's not, no, <laughs> no distinction between reading or for, listening. Yeah, oh, okay. For our listeners who are not in the room with us, Karen quickly nabbed her phone. Yes. She can give the titles. And Kim is racking her mental I'm going, Rolodex okay, about Stephen a Stephen King count. It probably <laughs> doesn't. Yeah, so no, I'm not really no. sure. It can be uh, professional or personal, fiction, nonfiction, past uh, or present. Tell well, us, Karen. Yeah, I'll be happy that. to tell you what I've been reading because I think this is really, really important. There's a, an author, Paul Lencioni, and he's written some really terrific books. And the ones I would recommend are The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, yes. The Advantage, and The Ideal Team Player. And I think the only way we get work done is in teams, and it's important that we have the right people on the team and the teams mm -hmm. are acting with yeah. trust and confidence uh, in each other and that everyone is an ideal team player. And for those who haven't read his book, he defines the ideal team player as being humble, hungry, 
and smart. So you want people that are, are always wanting to do more and are people smart, uh, but are humble enough to know that they don't know it all. And I think uh, for anyone listening, the ability to be a good team player and lead healthy and good teams is really the key to success, especially in healthcare. Great. I've read that book. We, uh, re- we did it in grad school. And Which so- one? Five dysfunctions oh, yeah. as well as um, there was one that was really great. Difficult conversations. Yes, yes. that's another. Good, that's another. That's good another one. good yes. one. Yep. And, and I think those things are really helpful to people. I've reread that one about four four times <laughs> because it has so it has a lot of the um, the scripts even of like here's how you can start this type of difficult conversation. And it's helpful yeah. because most of us avoid that uh-huh. sort of conversation. So. Mm-hmm. But your team is healthier if you have them. And the whole team, it, it, you know, in my experience, we've had someone who's, who's just not a good fit and it's not working out well. And we, we've worked with him or her, but it just doesn't. And you have that conversation and you help that person move on to something that they're better suited for. You can feel the entire rest of the team do two things. They, their shoulders go down, they relax, they breathe a sigh of relief, and it gives them a sense of safety and security to say, Okay, there are, there are rules and there are expectations, and everyone is held to the same standard, and that makes people feel safe, I think, in a way. I agree. Cameron, have you thought Well, so, <laughs> so I can't pull out my phone because on my phone I keep all my murder mystery books. That I, everything I read for fun I read on my phone. If I'm going to read a business book, I have to have it in paper because I still – Old school. I Highlighter. Still highlight. I do. I do. I highlight. I fold pages down I'm or whatnot. You. So don't. But I do like, you know, we have a small team. We have six people on our leadership team. We have maybe nine or ten folks on the um, on our director and management level team. And a lot of those are first-time managers, people managers, or first-time directors. And to kind of take off on your point, don't ask me for any of the names, but, you know, we as a team are constantly looking for for references, whether it be through, through books or articles or whatnot, where we can share across the management team, do a sh- kind of a shared reading experience, have some conversations about it, and then, you know, use that as a growth opportunity for our, our managers and our leaders. I think we've done as a business, we've done a really good job of promoting folks from within we've not done as good of a job as ensuring we're giving them everything they need to be successful so that's something that we're trying to take you know to a new level and you can't just put somebody in a new leadership position and say good good, good luck to you i hope you, hope do you well. can swim hope you can swim yeah. so um we've been focusing quite a bit on you know leadership skills um, and a lot of that does come down to being able to have honest conversations to be able to admit when you're wrong because sometimes people get promoted into these roles and I'm a manager now so I can't show that weakness I can't show that ooh I made a huge mistake but being able to be vulnerable teach, yeah, exactly it's exactly. one of the most powerful things you can do yeah. because yeah. I think it engenders trust yeah and, and I think as women in these positions we have an especial responsibility to model what that behavior should look like for other women because uh, fair or unfair I still think uh, boys in our country grow up thinking, you know, I'm the best, I can do anything I want. And the, and the girls think, well, okay, I, I think I'm doing okay and I'm, I'm working hard. They don't necessarily have that confidence. So I think uh, modeling confidence mm-hmm. and, the, and, and part of admitting mistakes, that's part of being confident. Yep. Absolutely. Is to say, I was wrong about that. Yes, you know, so absolutely. I, I feel a special responsibility. Can I digress for just a quick second? Sure. Do either of you all struggle with imposter syndrome being in the C-suite? No. And I know I, sh- I know I should, that, that feeling, oh, I don't really belong here, they, if they only knew. 
that I'm not really mm. qualified. You know, well, not I don't. That you're not really qualified. Or that they even? just don't feel. Yeah, like you feel like a. Yeah. Am I really the right person or the right fit for this? Should somebody else be in this position, uh, etc.? This interview is helping me a lot to feel important. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> no, I, 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 I certainly have read about that and heard other people, but I don't feel that way. I mean, I, I've worked hard and and I know what I'm doing. And um, good, that's great. So I don't feel that way at all. Good. Are you gonna make me answer that? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I should have kept my mouth shut. You were, you were just about to go on to a no, different question. Shoot. Um, I would say, um, I would say sometimes, but not, um, not born out of you know necessarily gender or or experience necessarily. I mean, I, I was on a, I was on leadership teams for for eleven years before I got promoted into a CEO role, and that's it's very different doing that than if you're like a, a founder CEO right where you potentially could have all the confidence in the world because this is your thing and you built it and, and whatnot but it, it's a very difficult job it's a hard it's very very hard so there are certainly you know times where it's like holy cow I've, I would have never imagined that we, the business would be faced with this question or I'd be faced with this decision or whatever and so yeah, I do find myself saying, well, all right, you know, what is there, if, if I had 10 more years of experience as a CEO, would I be making any different of a decision? That's kind of how I, I look at it. But I will tell you that, the, um, you know, I have a coach, I have an executive coach who I meet with every other month about um, for three hours, and he's fantastic. And I have an amazing board, and I have a great chairman. And so, you know, over this time, it's been, you know, Everybody makes mistakes, and everybody makes wrong decisions, and everybody makes right decisions. And maybe I made, I could have made a, a better decision over the last three years on a topic. But if somebody else was in my seat, they might have made a better decision. Could have made a better decision on a different topic. So everybody, it's there's no right answer in this job. So it's hard to you can't uh, can't second guess yourself because there there really is like no right answer to, to many many things. And, and I bet you have a good network of friends. I think the other thing is critical stuff. A good network of old friends who unlike people at work will be just dead honest with you and say you are being an idiot knock it off <laughs> and sometimes we all need those friends who'll just say you're just wrong you know yeah. and then, and having that that network of people that you can confide in who've known you they know you and they know you know you for a long time and they'll just be straight with you and um that's invaluable uh-huh. yeah i think that's a social currency sometimes Ladies, if somebody, if our listeners wanted to find you online, let's start with you, Karen. Um, are you on social networks? Is there? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm uh, on LinkedIn, Karen R. Clark, okay. and Twitter, Karen R. Clark, <laughs> and my email is Karen Clark at Ortho Tennessee. So, I, but you might get one of the three thousand nine hundred ninety-four other Karen Clarks. <laughs> uh, that I've gotten to know some of the other Karen Clarks because they get my Gmail sometimes and. I get there, so it's good. And if folks are looking for Ortho Tennessee, what's that website? www.orthotennessee.com. Yep. So kim.labo at medfusion.com, and I'm also on LinkedIn. I don't okay. do any of the other social stuff. Is Medfusion online anywhere? Uh, well, med, medfusion.com, and then we do have uh, uh, primarily on, on Twitter and then on um, LinkedIn, of course. So. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you both. It's been a real treat. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thank, thank you. you. It's fun. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at
at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate the ratings on iTunes. Or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to MedFusion for sponsoring this episode. You can find more about MedFusion at www.medfusion.com.